we're here to discuss a study in masochism, which is disguised as content. <laughs> we're here to talk about a football docuseries, which, unlike its norm, isn't steep in romanticism, but in brutal reality. We're here to talk about Sunderland till I die. With me, I've got Fergus. Fergus, how's it going? Do you know what? I have been battered around by our Tuesday lecture series that we've, we've got, but I'm ready to talk football. I'm ready to talk Sunderland till I die. Do you think that has in any part to do with the fact that you're a Newcastle fan, that you're uh, extra excited? <laughs> might do, might do. Um, but I should, uh, just before we get into it, I'd like to state for the record, you can probably tell by the voice, I'm not a long-term Newcastle United fan. I was being Newcastle gradually uh, as I went through my university years. Uh, crucially, though, it was before the takeover. I'm not a glory hunter, um, but I am not a lifelong, uh, and I would, can only give myself the title of honorary Geordie, not full-time lifelong Geordie. But I, I guess for this podcast, until we finish recording, you're Newcastle till you die. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Uh, and we've got Paddy here with us. Paddy, how's it going? Yeah, really good, really good. Very excited for this. I think um, I think I mentioned to you when you first said you wanted to do this podcast series that Sunday Until I Die was hot on my list of best sports podcasts. So yeah, very excited to be here. So before we dive into this, guys, uh, we do this thing on the podcast. I mean, we've done it for only one episode, but we do this now. It's <laughs> a part is through another lens culture. Uh, you guys give us a recommendation for our listeners. What have you been watching? What have you been listening to, reading, anything? Fergus? Well, because it is the final of the Rugby World Cup in New Zealand uh, coming up this weekend, I am reading Playing the Enemy, uh, which is all about the story of Nelson Mandela coming to power in South Africa and the role that the 1995 World Cup played in uniting South Africa, very much flushing out apartheid. Uh, and the role that Nelson Mandela played, but also Francois Pinard played the captain of the Springboks for that World Cup. And it's brilliant. Isn't it a bit like Invictus? Well, Invictus was then based on this book. Ah. Yeah. That's where Matt Damon has the worst South African accent ever. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Paddy? Uh, yeah, so I'm not reading anything particularly interesting at the moment, but I think the best football book that I can recommend that I don't hear people talk about that much is Can We Have Our Football Back by Johnny Nicholson. Uh, Johnny Nick is a football writer. For, I think it's is it Football Three Six Five. That's a that's a football yeah. site, isn't it? Um, and yeah, it's just about it's it's for people like me who sometimes when you watch like Premier League football or top level football, you kind of get this feeling of detachment that it kind of doesn't really represent what you like about sport anymore because it's so commercialised and there's so much money in it. And it's just kind of his sort of thesis and then theory for how you would possibly begin to kind of rip that out of it a little bit and kind of bring football back to the fans. So yeah, it's a good read. I love the fact that we're doing a football culture podcast and you guys have both been reading stuff which is so heavily based on stuff happening off the field. Uh, so that's amazing. So so here's how we're going to discuss Sunderland Till I Die because there is a lot to unpack here in this show. It's, a, it's one of those cornerstones of football documentaries. I think it changed the game completely. Uh, I think it just completely redefined a, complete, a whole genre. So here's what we're going to do. I think the show is defined by its people. So we're going to go like executive, managers, players, and we're going to pick the one person who we think defines this show. Uh, and we're going to start, because I think Sunland Till I Die is one of those shows which is not as much focused on dressing room content as what's happening in the boardroom. So I think we've got to start with the executives. Uh, first off, we're going to start with season one's Martin Bain. I think he does come across as a bit pompous. What do you think, Paddy? Yeah, I just remember I was... So I obviously re-watched it for the purpose of this podcast. And I think it's like the opening scene, or certainly the opening scene of him, is him going for some, sw like going for some sort of swim at like dusk. He, oh, sorry, at dawn. He's up at the crack of dawn. He's going for a swim. And like he tailors what he wants, the content on that. So he's obviously gone to the team doing the Netflix saying, I want you to get a video of me swimming at dawn to show how early I get up and how dynamic I am in my life. I think that scene, I'd already realised what sort of person he was. He's so incredibly pompous. Yeah, I found watching him, there was just something not quite genuine about him. That, that I found watching on. And I think that's, that description that you just put, or that you just used, Paddy, I think is, is spot on. Because I always got the idea it, he cared far more about how he wanted to be presented than what he actually did on a day-to-day -day basis. And I'm sure we'll get on to talk about some of the transfers and everything. But I just don't think he worked very hard 
at being an executive, I don't think he he fitted the Sunderland image, the the what it what it means to be a part of Sunderland Football Club. I think he did feel like you know you those Wall Street Bros type. Yeah. He he did have a bit of that vibe, right? Like someone who's here and. I just felt at each moment in the show, he's like, Sunderland is massive. We are Sunderland, you know, which it kind of reminded me how Gary Neville talks about Man United on Sky Sports. <laughs> but, you know, just focusing on that, but giving no real solutions there. And I don't know, I guess I just felt pity for him more than anything. Really? So I feel like, I feel, I feel pity for Stuart Donald, who obviously we'll get onto later on. But Martin Bain... Uh, yeah, like, the picture that I kind of painted earlier kind of just sums up my entire feeling. People, people like that always rub me up the wrong way. So this is a personal affront, I feel, <laughs> from someone like Martin May. It feels like he just read How to Be an Executive uh, Director, read a book on it, and then just, like, delivered out these lines. But I also think, like, he's not very good at his job as well. Because I remember when he talks about how he's planning transfers and he's got his little black book. And it's like, I should probably be a bit more detailed than this. It's like, well, yes, you really fucking should. Like, you're in charge of Sunderland in the championship. Talking about how big they are. And you've just got this little book. Like, he talks the talk, but, like, he just does not walk the walk at all. And I, I, I do wonder, I think, I, we're starting to give him quite a lot of stick and everything. But I suppose <laughs> to chuck into it, he, he is a part of the system as well. Yeah, obviously he's got to set the budgets and everything, but ultimately the money comes comes from the owners, and there is only so much he can do with the money that he's that he's given. But I suppose you do have to hold him hold him hugely responsible for the for the slips that Sunderland made into the Premiership and into into League One. I, I think I think that's bang on, honestly, because he was like Ellishot, the owner's like go to man at the club, right? And he did what Ellishot wanted him to do, so. You know, we see through season one when uh, Ellis Shaw's trying to sell the club uh, that they suddenly don't have money to spend and Martin's like, yeah, that's what the owner wants right now. I, I can't do anything. So I guess I guess pity wouldn't be the right word now that I think about it. It just he feels like a bit of a loser. Mm. If You know what I mean? I don't mean that in like a very high school way, but like just someone who just looks so beaten, uh, who doesn't want to be there. And I think the most telling thing we saw about Martin Bain came in the second season when you find out he's been the one using the player sauna, right? And none of the players have been going, but Martin Bain is going there and doing it. So that really changed my perception of the man. And I don't think, from a footballing perspective, he was that great either, was he? I was going to say, he at the time, he was the highest pay, he was on the highest salary of, of, uh, of an executive in his position. And I don't think he was worthy of that. I think, yes, he was Ellis', he was Ellis man at Sunderland, but at the same time, I think he's also got to hold Ellis accountable um, in order for what's going to be best for Sunderland because that's what matters most and that's what will matter most to the fans. That's why the fans despised him because they felt he wasn't doing what was in the best interest of the club. And now if Ellis doesn't want to put money into it, well, then it's, it's Martin's responsibility to get that money from Ellis or find an alternative income source. Yeah, I mean, I would say... Um... I don't want to, you know, draw all the ire of the Sunderland fans, but I would say, you know, to, to not to defend him, but to say, obviously, it was a difficult job coming down from a Premier League. That is a tricky job. And there was clearly a massive malaise that was just around the club generally. So it was going to be hard to dig out. And obviously, then not having much funding from Ellis Short. And I would probably say, touching on Ellis Short, I'd probably say, I kind of get it. Like, he had put a lot of money into the club. I do sort of understand why he didn't want to keep just funding the club so relentlessly. So I understand Ellis Short's position. I understand why that made Martin Bain's position hard. But could have just been a bit less of a pompous like dick essentially no, it was, it was, I was going to say it was the shots in there was it the Range Rover that he drove yeah the big <laughs> Land Rover as well yeah, yeah. we get it we get it he <laughs> yeah. drive this like like such like big dick energy right there <laughs> yeah. you know you know you know what I mean I was going to say compensate yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> um, but you know so the other thing I was thinking about right so when I was reading up on this show uh, so one of the producers on the show said the big reason why Sunderland agreed to do it was because Ellishot wanted to sell the club. So this they wanted to kind of you know market the club in this way. Really? But yeah, so that was like the driving force behind it. But as you know, in season one there's no Ellishot at all. So they did this whole big interview, sit down interview with him. But they just felt like we we can't not have him through the whole show and then just fit him in towards the end. So I think in many ways Martin Bain. Uh, is also there in place of Alishot in the documentary, right? Like, 
he's doing that role for the club as well but he's doing this in the documentary as well so he's carrying like a burden of two people there and i mean he just looks after every time they lose they're just sliding down the table and he's like no i think we can turn it around i think we can turn it around which is like this fake optimism which i don't know like it it, it robs you off the wrong way i guess with martin bain i mean yeah massively I, I, he does feel like quite a fake person in generally in in general like i don't really know i don't really know what it is about him because I mean, like I said earlier, like he talks the talk but doesn't walk the walk. He definitely says a lot of the right things, and I do think like the constant positivity is important. I quite enjoy like the, the Schadenfreude, and there's a lot of Schadenfreude in this entire first and second season. Uh, but I enjoy it every time he says that there's going to be positivity and there's going to be an uplift, and then like there's a <laughs> sudden slip to another defeat, and they slide down that table. I just enjoy it so much watching it on Martin Bain's face. I think so. So far with Martin Bain, we've got loser, pompous. <laughs> we have questions about his dick size. We were really off to a great start here, guys. Really off to a great start. Um, Stuart Donald, how do we feel about Stuart Donald, Fergus? Um, what I really liked about the first or one of the first interactions with with Stuart and with Charlie as well was that straight up their first meeting. It was like, right, well, we're going to go and speak to the supporters. And I think that's always a very, very good way to start a relationship. Um, since then, I'm not too sure as to, to what's happened, but I think having setting a precedent that looks like you're going to be engaging with the fans, asking what the fans want, I think is is vital because ultimately the fans' voice has to prevail um, with the decisions that you're going to be making. Stuart Donald gave me, you know, there's that old adage, right? Like, nice guys finish last mm. or finish whatever, in the playoffs of the League One <laughs> table. But he just gave me that vibe, right? Like a nice guy, but just well in over his head. Yeah, I, that's exactly what I was going to say, actually. Like, when you look at the three executives that, that, that appear heavily in the two seasons, Martin Bain, Charlie Methven, I think, are kind of in a bit of a category, quite a similar sort of category. Like, they both come across as people I, I don't think I'd enjoy the company of. Stuart Donald, like, I I think part of the reason why I like it is just Stuart Donald, because he, he is... <laughs> so incompetent like he is so useless I have no idea how he's got into this position by the way how he ended up owning a football club he probably just fancied well what am I going to spend my money on let's where did he get the money though <laughs> who knows <laughs> let's not ask that question yeah <laughs> as a Newcastle fan Fergus is like yeah like, we're not going to go there but our owners now <laughs> but yeah I think the entire Will Griggs saga when, like you can see him actively like like just oh, getting that, overly emotional. Is that, I want Will Greg. I want Will Greg. Yeah. Doesn't matter. I know I'm going to be overpaid yeah. on Will Greg, but it doesn't matter. I want Will Greg. Yeah. Do you think his ego came in the way a bit, and like he got, his emotions got the better of him, just overall in his running of the club? No, I think his lack of experience did. Um, but what was important was he was still there. Uh, I think by contrast to that first season, we saw quite a lot of Stuart Donald, and um, we saw him at matches. We saw him there in his Sunderland tie and everything and I think as a fan I think if you can still see your owner coming along to matches I think that's that's good yes he might be an idiot but at least he's still there he's supporting the club and I think that's that's an important thing yeah I think I'd agree with that I think definitely there is a change from, from season one to season two and it's like you say when they were like when Charlie and Stuart are like meeting the fans and stuff they're trying to do it in the right foot I think Stuart's heart is genuinely in the right place genuinely wants to do the right thing for Sunderland fans and I, I, I do I think, yeah, I don't even know if it's necessarily self-preservation with, with Stuart Donald. I don't necessarily think he's he's in it just because he wants to better Sunderland because obviously that's him doing well in business. I generally think he actually wants to improve the situation for the fans, but he, he's just like, he's just a child, isn't he? Like, he's just a bit of a kid. Like, if I was, if I'm playing FIFA and I'm trying to negotiate to buy Will Grave on deadline day, I pay three million plus one more an add-on. Like, that's what I do. <laughs> but I'm not the owner of Sunderland. Like, just have some composure, man. I think that's so true, right? Like, he, he kind of did run the club, like, manager mode on FIFA, right? Like, I want to do this, I can do this, and we will survive. And, like, we will do it. And I think he had his heart in the right place. Like, Fergus, you said, right? Like, he went, saw a game in the stands with the fans or... You know, you can see how much he cares about the club and he, repeatedly uh, he's talking about what a privilege it is for him to own Sunderland. Um, it's, one of the, it's one of the oldest clubs in, yeah, in, the, in the English... In yeah, the, it's a massive club. Like, it, it is a big deal. And like, I think he understood uh, just the size of the club, but I don't think he understood the size of the job, if that makes sense. Yeah, I completely yeah, it agree. It does. You know? 
And I think finally we got to move to Charlie Maven. <laughs> Dick swinging. Where do we start? Dick swinging Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Leah, I think you mentioned it earlier. I, you don't think you could be in a room with him. I don't think I could have a working relationship with him. I think he's a bit of an arse. But what he's doing is he's coming in and he realises that the whole thing needs shaken up. It needs change because it's gotten a bit stale. And actually he's coming in, he's trying to inject energy. I think energy is the most important thing. He's trying to inject energy into this management. And he's receiving friction and and because people aren't wanting to change thinking oh well we'll keep going about the old ways hoping something will happen so actually do you know what i don't think i could work with him i think he's i think he's a bit of an arse but i really like the fact he's trying to just just what's the it's almost like open up the curtains finally mm. open up the curtains get some light into it and um have a bit of fresh air yeah i mean i that's exactly my thought on charlie methan like I think in a weird way, he's probably the only one that's actually a little bit competent. Like he, yeah. he sort of does know what he's doing. You're completely right. There's something so wrong in the club. There, there, no one's really working. There's so much complacency. No one really gives a toss like how things go. And he actually goes there and he wants to shake things up. I think he's actually got a lot of quite good ideas. I think he speaks a lot of sense. But my God, he's a nasty bloke. Like the 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 meeting that he has with the marketing team where he's trying to get them to have ideas, like. I get that they're not doing a good job there, the marketing team. It's a bit of a horrible meeting for that sense, but he doesn't have to be that nasty. And he also doesn't have to request for the cameras to film it and then put it in the documentary of these people getting slated for doing their jobs badly. It's just nasty. He's just a nasty piece of work, but he is competent. Yeah, I mean, he did come and he did ruffle a few feathers, right? I think he does talk about it where there was this culture of the club of whatever they spend on, they just charge it to the owner. And like that was clearly not sustainable. So... I mean, the stuff he did for, I think, was it like the Boxing Day game where he wanted like 40,000 people yeah. in the stands. Like, that was a really good idea. Like, the way 100%. he went about it and they did they did achieve that. But strangely, I feel like I liked him at the start of the season. But as we progressed, I'm like, nah, like, this guy is just increasingly rubbing me off in the wrong way. See, I don't, he wouldn't be able to work there long term. But I think for a couple of years or something to get the culture shifting, to just to get a new lease of life into the culture, I think it's quite important. Uh, quite a bullish attitude to almost jumpstart the whole situation again. But it couldn't be a long-term thing. Do you think he created a toxic work environment at Sunderland? Yeah, I would say for the people that work for him, especially that, that marketing team, there's that woman, Lorna, I want to say her name is, and there's another one as well. Like The, the thing that I think of the most when I think about how toxic he was as a person is, and I know we're going to touch on it later, but the checker trade final against Portsmouth, and he's like demanding this poor marketing person to go and get him beers. And then like during yeah. the game, he's like getting so irate and shouting so much, his partner's having to tell him to calm down. It's like, dude, like, what is your problem? Just like treat people like people. Yeah. And I think he was like at halftime of some of these games, he's like slagging off the manager, he's slagging off the players, that we always do this. And... It was almost like you do realize this is being filmed, right? Like you can't have your owner berating your manager and your team about how they always throw it away. This is a trend for the season. Yeah, not good. Not good from that perspective of it. Um, again, I think it maybe comes into that almost that image that Martin Bain was trying to portray of like, oh, look at me. I'm this big, this big alpha bloke coming in who's going to change everything. Um, but he's not he was not a long term solution for Sunderland at but all. I think I think if they got promoted right I think we would be looking at him as a genius I mean it would be hindsight bias but I would I he, think a lot of that hinges on him in that yeah he wasn't the nicest bloke to work with but he maybe Sunderland did need that um, tough love approach maybe at the time yeah well famously football is a results based business so obviously I think if, if they had gone up, yeah, I think he would have been given a lot of the, lot of the credit for that. But at the same time, I don't know. I think genius, for me, I think it's probably a bit far because this is a team that was playing Premier League football a couple of years before. The squad they have, like Aidan McGeady, at that point playing League One football was mad. They brought in so many players. They don't really touch it in the second season, but that team is like completely different to the team you see in the first season. They bring yeah. in so many players. I mean, I think genius would be strong, but yeah, he, did a, he definitely was productive in changing the culture. So guys, who are we... Which executive defined the show for us? You know, you think Sunderland to let I, which of these three are you thinking of? Charlie. Paddy? Mm, I think Stuart. 
Oh, I was gonna go Martin Bain. <laughs> That's good though. That's good. That's good. So I, th- yeah. I think all of them, I, they brought a bit of something different. I think I think it helped that they were all really different characters mm-hmm. uh, in their own way. So we'll move to the managers. Uh, we'll start with Simon Grayson. Uh, it'll interest you guys to know Simon Grayson, uh, once the manager of Sunderland Football Club, currently manages my home team in India. Really? He is the manager no of Bangalore FC. So <laughs> that's unreal. Yeah, that like to me that is crazy. And I remember when I read the news, right? Like this is maybe a couple of months ago. I'm like, that name looks so familiar. Why do I know him? And then I'm like, no way. So, what do you think of him, Fergus? I mean, it wasn't very good, was it? <laughs> he wasn't even around for too long. Honestly, no. when I think about it, but just I think he was just one of those guys. The ship was sinking at that time, and I think he was one of the first to fall off. Yeah, I just think he wasn't up to the task. He seems like someone that doesn't have much of a personality. I think of, there was one scene in particular that really stuck with me, um, where he's trying to like give some, give the players some sort of inspirational speech. I can't remember what he's saying, but he's got like some flow charts and he's talking about how the, you know, give the fans passion and they'll give back to you, all of this kind of stuff. And the way he's saying it is with such a boring tone. And you're just like, you're looking at the player, there's no way any of them are even listening to what he's saying. There's no way he's someone that's going to turn this club around and get them up. No, it's a very unique situation that I suppose getting relegated from Premier League down to Championship. Um, and obviously the mission is always get yourself back up in as few seasons as possible. So you've got, what you've got to come in, you've got to come in and very quickly change the mindset of, oh no, we've just been relegated, it's the worst thing in the world, to, well, we're good enough to get straight back up again. And I think as Paddy said, he wasn't. I mean, he was dismissed after what, but less than five months because he, he plummeted he didn't know how to deal with the team in that sort of situation um, and yet yes I said it's a unique situation to be in but you've got to be able to react to that I think you know uh, what you were talking about is team talks being so drab it reminds me of like you know way back when Facebook was a thing right like when you would change your profile picture like I just google like a random quote and just put that down I feel like that's how Simon Grayson prepared his team talks, right? Like going the previous day, <laughs> motivational <ten>. quotes. <laughs> top 10 inspirational. Top 10, top 10 inspirational, you know. Teamwork makes the dream work, that type of thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, apart from the fact that he manages Bangalore FC, I don't think there's much to talk about Simon Grayson. No, he wasn't great. But I think the guy who came after him, I think, I think there's a lot to talk about Chris McColgan. Yeah, I, I'd definitely say so. Um, there's so much to unpack. I think... The first thing I think I'd say the hiring, um, I, this sounds like I'm speaking in hindsight with the benefit of hindsight and like, oh, look at me, I'm such an old. But I'm sure when he got hired, I remember thinking, I'm not sure, I'm not sure he's necessarily the man for this at the time, just because obviously he comes off the back of doing incredibly well with Wales. Um, but I, I just think he kind of rode a wave with Wales where they were already doing so well. I think obviously speed kind of started it off and they were already doing so well. They had a really good vibe around the place, a lot of young players. And he just kind of rode on that atmosphere. And you can see as soon as he comes in, he's a bit of a vibes guy. Like he just kind of goes around with the atmosphere and just uh, he's pretty positive and upbeat and he just creates that around him. But when you go into somewhere like, uh, like Sunderland at that time, that's so toxic and it's so negative. Everyone's so despondent. No one's really working hard. I think you need a bit more than someone who's just going to go in and just be upbeat. Fergus? I think what it goes to show is that managing a nation is so different to managing a club um, because you've got to be able to deal with someone on a, or, or a whole team on a day-to-day basis, manage those relationships and get the most out of those players. If you're a national team manager, you don't, in essence, you don't really have to do too much. All you've got to do is pick the players who are on form in a certain window of time. But if you're managing well, any team, any club, you've got to be able to maintain form for a consistent period of time. Whereas, yeah, whilst he's at Wales, all you've got to do is just watch the game, see who's, see who's doing what, and yes, go off a bit of previous form, national team form, but also see well, who's hot at the moment. And you can't, it's, I think it's a very different skill set because you only have to get the most out of a players for a week, two weeks, however long the international break is, and he didn't adapt well to Sunderland. No, I think that's really true. I think international football and club football, they're like two different sports, uh, honestly, when you think about it. And But I would say, though, that when I remember when the news was announced that he was signing, I thought that was a great coup. I thought like Sunderland had really 
been smart there because like you said right he'd come off Wales and I think the one thing which always came out of like the Wales camp whenever the players spoke was the environment they had right like they were always more than the sum of their parts and I guess at the place Sunderland win maybe some you know TLC was something perhaps I thought that they needed but do you think that it was a case of just bad timing for him that he wasn't supported well by the owners the club was in flux yeah do you think that that played a role i do think there's a bit of that because you can tell from the january transfer window then when it comes out that ellis isn't going to put any more money into the club well i think you could have put just about any manager in but if you can't get that buying an investment from your owner then you're gonna you're gonna struggle yeah i actually i think i disagree with that actually uh sorry fergus <laughs> um no i so i think my issue is with coleman i think he's great in the international stage which is very much feeding into what you were saying mm. Because a lot of that, you get those players for such a small amount of time, so just creating a good environment is like 60% of the job. I don't think many Wales fans would say that he was a master tactician. He's never really, I don't think he was ever really a good tactical manager, never really read the game necessarily that well. And I think that was one of his, his big failings with the Sunderland squad. And whilst he wasn't backed, I still kind of maintain the point that I kind of made earlier. Of they still had quite a strong squad. There were a lot of good players. I don't, I don't. It's, it's, it's weird throughout the documentary because both seasons do the same thing whereas at the beginning of the season there's always positivity which there always is around every football club but a lot of the narrative is around we've got such a good squad we're so ready to go back up and then by about the halfway point when it's kind of gone to shit everyone's saying need some investment need some investment and it's like well these are the same players that you thought were too good for this league six months ago I don't I think it's just an easy get out for the managers just to say but when you hear the fans talk about him, you know, in like all the interviews, they were like, you know, this is the man, he gets the club, he understands it, he's exactly the right person. But do you think that, I mean, you know, all football fans have a very, very short memory. Um, do you think that's just because there was such a contrast to what was before? When he comes in and you've got someone who can actually deliver a team talk and actually has some enthusiasm in their voice, do you think that's all they're comparing it to? I mean, yeah, I think I think from a PR perspective, I think he did talk a good game, right? Like, he did say the right things in the press conferences, um, to the fans, and he just seemed like a very likeable guy. I think, and I think that really comes through in the show. Like, when you're watching it, you want him to do well. You're rooting for him. You're not rooting for Sunderland, necessarily, but you want Chris Coleman and his uh, backroom staff to do well. But I think something interesting which uh, about Chris Coleman was, you know, in the January transfer window, they sell, I think it's Lewis Graben, uh, their main striker. And I remember you have a clip where Aidan McGeady uh, talks about it, where he says that, okay, he might not be like the best guy for the dressing room, but he scores goals. And if you want to stay in the championship, you need goals. And like, he basically says that that wasn't the smartest decision uh, to get rid of a few bad apples. And now we're all thinking. So... Do you think there's some questions there about the way he handled things at the club? Do you think there's anything he could have done differently? So, I, th- I think on that one, I mean, I don't know. I'm always, I'm always like, regardless of what I'm talking about, if I'm talking about, like, uh, transfers and things like that, I'm always reluctant to blame managers because I never know. You never really know quite how much say they necessarily have. I sort of assumed the grab-in thing was because I got the vibe that the player wanted to move and they just couldn't really hold him. Um, but I do think, just on the Coleman thing, I do think... He definitely got the club. He definitely got the fans. He's definitely a really good guy. So I completely understand how he got everyone on board. And I think that's absolutely true. Like, he was such a good bloke. I really wanted him to do well. But I think, I do think there were little bits and pieces that came out. I, I think, is it Aidan McGee? Someone says something at some point in, in one of the interviews. It might be Aidan McGee in the same one, actually, where he says something along the lines of, he just didn't quite give me the right message or something like that or I didn't know what I was doing I think he's talking about tactics and he's mm. like I, don't, I didn't quite know where to stand or something like that mm. which I thought was interesting I th- that was that was the biggest flaw I sort of saw in Coleman was kind of tactical nous I suppose maybe he's the Welsh dead lasso I guess that works that does work right yeah. like, um, I think on that point we should move to Jack Ross uh, was the manager during their League One spell um, seems like a smart bloke yeah, I like Jack Ross. Um, a bit dour, a bit, bit miserable, but aren't uh, most Scottish people? Yeah. I mean, you would be, you would be if you'd moved to Sunderland and were managing a League One club. I think, yeah, he is a bit vanilla, right? Like, I don't have any opinions on Jack Ross. Like, yeah, he was okay. Um, I guess, if you think about it, he did take them to the League One playoffs. They did get to the final of a cup. Check trade. Uh, yeah. Check trade. Check trade, which is mm-hmm. called the Papa John's Trophy now. Uh, 
which I'm sure as a Charlotte fan you might know something about. Hey. Yeah, sadly, yeah. Sadly, <laughs> I know all too much about it. Jesus. I, I, I couldn't resist that. Thing. But we'll get to Charlton. Uh, we will get to Charlton, of course. Uh, they play a big role in Sunderland till I die. But I don't have an opinion about Jack Ross, really. Well, he came in and he did the job. Um, I think he got them in a position to, to get themselves back up to the championship. And then I think it just came down to the players on the day. So I... I think he did as much as you could ask of him. Yeah, I, I think he was... He did his job. I think even, like, if you, we were talking about the Will Grigg thing, right? Like, he was the guy who was always saying, like, let's not overpay for him. Mm-hmm. And obviously, when they do sign him, he's not going to come across and say, oh, the owner's fucked up there, right? So he said, yeah, like, he can score goals. We know what he can do. So I think he was like... You know when you think of a company, man? Just the guy, <laughs> like, I am going to do what you want me to do. He gave me a bit of that vibe. Yeah, I get that. I think, I guess the way I'd sum him up is like, out of a lot of extremely interesting people that like form the entire documentary, he's like the one uninteresting person. Mm. <laughs> but, I mean, we've touched upon sort of incompetency and various other things. He's actually, throughout the season, he was a very, very good constant. Mm. Um, throughout it, he came in, he levelled the ship and he started to get some results, um, which is exactly what the club needed. Yeah, I think there was so much chaos and change going on in the boardroom level. Yeah. Uh, just some consistency. Who are we picking out of these three? Fergus? Jack Ross with the ability to deliver a team talk from Chris Coleman. So I'm going for a bit of a hybrid. Mm. Is that allowed? Yeah, there are no rules here. <laughs> there are no rules here. Um, oh. uh, I think the one, yeah, the, if I think of something until I die, I guess I think of Chris Coleman. Oh, in terms of that? Yeah. yeah. Oh, Chris Coleman then. Yeah, yeah, me too, Chris Coleman. Yeah. I think he, I guess, he's just a nice guy, got caught up in yeah. the flames. Next topic, main player energy. Who is the player who defined this show? And I know there are many to go through, so I'm just going to throw it open to you guys. Uh, Fergus, if you had to pick one player who you felt like, yeah, like, when I think of someone until I die, he's the guy who comes to mind. Um, I think for me watching on... Um, I think because when the first season came out, I was still sort of getting into football. Um, but the name that sticks with uh, that sticks with me was Lee Catamore, mm-hmm. um, and I say that because of his involvement with the club uh, for a, 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 a consistent period of time. So he's he's been through it all. Uh, he'd seen some highs, some lows, mostly lows, but he still wanted to stay and, and play his football there. And I respect that from someone a lot. Yeah, I think Catamol was the one I had in mind as a constant, but I think to give a different answer, I suppose if you were to split it over the two seasons, I'd say season one, I think the person that seemed, having just rewatched it, the person that defines it for me is Darren Gibson. I, I can't, I, I had no idea from like when I was just remembering it before I rewatched it, how like much of a loose cannon he was. Like, he's a, like, I mean, I feel a bit bad actually because like he's clearly got some issues, but. Yeah, like, whoa, like, the amount of scandal around Darren Gibson that first season is, is a lot. And then the second one, I think, is pretty Josh Madger, because it all kind of, it all hinges mm. on what happens to Josh Madger, really. On Lee Catamol, though, is, he's such a streets won't forget player, you know? Um, and I was actually surprised that he didn't have a bigger role to play in the documentary, you know what I mean? That you don't see much, like, there aren't, like, too many feature interviews with him, or, you know, like, a shot of his family, his home, um... Which I was surprised because he's like one of the most senior players in the squad. Mm. So I, I wanted to see more, but uh, I guess we never... Bit of a quiet guy, I guess. Yeah, I kind of wonder whether he's a bit old school because I, I can't remember who was saying it. There's an old, some sort of footballer sometime was talking about like these documentaries and he was saying, look, like old school back in the day, we kind of shunned the media, so it tends to be the, the newer, younger players that really get involved with it, which you probably see in some until I die quite a lot, really. I wonder whether it was that Lee Cutamol sort of old school attitude that he just... The whole thing just seemed a bit alien to him, so he didn't want to get involved. Yeah, I wonder if he actually wanted the documentary to be there at all. I bet not. Yeah. Like, I think he was like... So, funny thing, I was reading up on Lee Catamol, and he, after the League One season, uh, he went to play in Netherlands. Really? And he, you know how he always, like, we're talking about him being old school, like, he used to, like, tuck his shirt in, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, that became, like, a social media trend, which the club did, like, do it like Lee Catamol type of thing. Nice. And he was, like, a massive fan favourite. I don't yeah. understand the problem with tucking in your shirt. 
Oh. Girl, how old are you, Fergus? Honestly. But is, is, is that a Scottish thing, actually? No, because Kieran Tierney like, does that all the time. Might be. I also think it might be a rugby thing because mm. you touch your, th- touch your shirt and you were, let, you were more difficult to, to try and grab. People couldn't just grab your shirt mm. from behind. So, maybe. yeah. Who are the others who play with their shirts tucked in? Michael Carrick used to do that. Yeah, Michael Carrick used to. I, I remember G Sung Park used to have his shirt tucked yeah. in all the time. It, it does bring something. Like, I, I think you have to be a certain type of player. Um, like, if Darren Gibson was tucking his shirt, and we're not going to have that. <laughs> like, we're not going to have that. Um, but I'm going to throw out another name, right? Johnny Williams. I think... I'll tell you why. Because there's... Like, he's injured. He's a good player. Um, he has that talent. You can see he wants to do well. And I think... You know, there's a scene in the first season where... We are sitting in as a viewer on his therapist... With a session with his therapist. I'm like... Why are we seeing this? Like, mm. why are we seeing this guy who you can obviously tell is going through a lot of stuff? Why are we in this room with him? Uh, and I think just his entire arc, right? Like, he comes back from injury, does well, uh, they get relegated, and then he makes a brief cameo in season two. Um, I don't know, like, I, I have a bit of a soft spot for Johnny. Oh, uh, yeah, massively. Um, I mean, he obviously went on after this season. To, to play for Charlton either the year after the year after that what do like you that. think of him at Charlton? Uh, uh, just sensational player like such a good footballer um, like just so so good so so talented um, and in the in the documentary like the thing that I wrote down in my notes during the first episode I just want to give him a hug mm. like, he just seems really sad about everything and I just want to give the man a hug yeah. <laughs> just needs a bit of love <laughs> yeah. um, and I completely agree I remember I was cringing so much watching that therapy scene like, why is that being recorded? <laughs> Oh God! I, I what, what a terrible thing to do, intrude yeah. on someone like that. But he he will he'll have, do you think he will have agreed to it, suggested it, about or that. do you think someone was like, oh, we should come along and film your therapy session? We should come along and film your therapy session. I reckon the latter. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if there's one thing I'd say from Johnny Williams, it's that he's not the sort of man to like, actually no, I'm going to put a boundary yeah. here. I think he's, he might be persuaded quite easily. Yeah. Or like the type of guy who just can't say no. Yeah. Like he might not want it, but like, like oh, I guess if you want to. <laughs> um, I also found it interesting that by the time we see him in season two, like he's completely shaved his hair off. Mm. So he's completely bald. And I think... He's finding himself. Yeah, yeah. Like he, he's been on a journey, Johnny Williams. You know, you know when you've shaved your head off, like shit's getting serious. Um, <laughs> he's speaking from experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had a little Britney's beard, yeah. did you? Paddy uh, suddenly just got a little personal there. I'm not, not having that here. That'll be edited out. Um, but Josh Maja, I think we need to talk about Josh Maja. You brought him up. Yeah, I mean, so something I found. So I, I think. First things that are the, like, the obvious things, like really good player, clearly has an incredible start to that season, and then wants to leave, his head gets turned, possibly by the agent, that's what they suggest in the, in the series, um, and his head is clearly turned, and he wants to go, and it has a massive impact on the club. But the thing that I find really strange is there's such a desire in the documentary to paint him and his agent as villains. Yeah, I wanted another side to that. Mm-hmm. I wanted... I, don't, I, I, I think the agent probably played a big part in that, but I wanted the interview... Or just something from Josh himself. And that's what it was missing, I thought, because it was too one-sided. Because there are some really there are some really interesting choices when they're... There's one bit where they sort of catch him in the gym or something, and they chat to him a bit. And he's clearly extremely uncomfortable. And it just feels... The whole thing's a bit... And obviously, they're trying to catch him out a little bit. And because, you know, he is kind of being a bit two-faced. You know, he is. There is that's undeniable. But... They kind of they've got this desire to try and catch him out, and like they ask him a question, he's like, "Yeah, I guess I'm just focused on the club or something." And then they like zoom in on him twitching his hand, and like he's nervous and he's probably like lying. And it's just, what are you trying? Like it's just weird how desperate they are to paint him as a villain. It, it made me uncomfortable watching it, to be honest. Well, maybe he was a villain. Well, maybe, maybe. I just thought he was a young player, just trying to do the best. Probably, I, mean, yeah. I wouldn't want to play with Sunderland in that year. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> but no. I did think that that was an interesting story about the power agents have in the game, right? Like, you always read about this, how agents are ruining football and how they're a nightmare to deal with. But I think here you've got to really see that firsthand. And um, I would push back and say that, yes, we didn't get to see... Like, you know, you guys are talking about how we didn't get to see the other side of the argument, but they do interview him. He could have said what he wanted then. Um, You know, like, if we know anything about Sunderland, they're not going to say no to interviewing anyone, (laughs) right? So... Like, he could have said what he wanted then about the club, about the situation, uh, anything, uh, and he didn't. And he looked 
so guilty. Like you could tell, like he was like probably because his man, his agent will have said, "Oh, you can't speak to them. You or you can't speak to them." But in reality, he could have said whatever he wanted to. Yeah, we should have got the agent on. Now that would have been interesting. Yeah, that would have been interesting. But it's a lot of the blame game as well. They, I, I do recognise that the, the agent definitely had a lot to play. But there's like a real culture in the boardroom of Sunderland, and I think it's probably quite symptomatic of a lot of the issues where. Like, they've clearly not planned properly. Like, they should have been aware. Madger's contract's coming to an end. He's a good player. He's a young player. He's going to be sought after. This should have been dealt with six months ago. And I guess it wasn't Stuart Donald's fault, but it should have been dealt with before. But the first thing is, like, let's just blame all of the other external factors that cause this. And that's why they're so different, like desperate to pin it on the agent, I think, because they just want to play the blame game. Mm-hmm. Um so the next category I have here is most intriguing to answer, but I think we can all agree it was Will Grigg, right? Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah, yeah. Like, I loved, I loved being able to have that kind of transfer call, hearing the back and forth, and actually seeing something ticking down into transfer deadline. Yeah. As someone who is, as I said, just getting into football, seeing that side of it, I loved it. Mm. I loved that pressure environment, that pressure situation. Um, because it's it's unlike anything else transfer deadline I think it oh, I think it was a spectacular piece of I want to ask you about that focus like yeah. you know like getting into football um, yeah. was this the type of show which like you're like oh man I want to get into it more or was this did this confuse you or did you look at maybe like an all or nothing and be like oh that would have been a better path to go down so I think it was actually what year did the Man City or nothing come out was that two? that came out 2019 18 18 yeah so it was there, it was actually having watched that that I started to mm. track things a little bit more mm. and then because you you watch it and then you sort of watch, oh well how are Man City getting on this year how are they doing mm. you start looking at other things and as soon as you start watching more of them as well and then the Sunderland one came up and I thought well I'll watch watch that one because it's just down the road mm. um, and I I've always enjoyed the story or the inner workings of something so I wasn't too too concerned about what was going on in the field but it was the other stuff it was um, for for the Man City one it was how Pep Guardiola interacted with his players which I thought was brilliant mm. and then that's the sort of stuff I was looking for in, in Sunderland how people are interacting with each other how t- people treat each other and then how that forms the show because I think the relationships are so important to how a club either succeeds or fails yeah and I think from Man City to Sunderland like Paul R.S. well that again that was the other thing that huge difference between the two and actually going from Man City where they could have anything they wanted at any time of day to Sunderland where it's it's not quite scraping by but it's as you said it's it's the opposite side of it and you actually see the raw emotions of, of the club and of the fans. We'll, we're, I'm sure we'll get onto the fans. But actually seeing, well, this is what this is what a proper football club is. Um, this is what a football club who, like, the, it's, it defines the city. Um, if, you, if you're a Man City fan, for example you'll come out of the stadium if they ever lose and be like, oh, wasn't that terrible. But they'll, they'll crack on with the rest of their lives. Sunderland lose, it ruins the city for the week. Mm. Uh, so much depends on that game and how the team performs. And I think there is, there's very few clubs where you can say that, um, where the football club is absolutely the beating heart of the city. Yeah, I think that's bang on. I'd say, the one thing I'd say is, I reckon, ironically... Um, Man City probably was one of those clubs 20 years, 25 years mm. ago. Like, like the kind of famous thing was if you're from Manchester, you support City. If you're not, you support United. Um, and I reckon there was definitely, there was a proper fan club, Man City. I reckon that's just a, a, a fun, not fun, but an interesting, ironic point that they're now kind of the symbol of everything yeah. that isn't kind of like fan representation by a club. Yeah. I think it'd be interesting to see how many people after this documentary started following Sunderland or maybe just started to keep an eye out for their results you know not a second team but you know you're just kind of looking over to see what's going on I reckon more to see if they're still continuing to be just as bad as they were yeah. in the documentary yeah, I think the yeah. minute they start becoming good I think they're gonna lose fans you know <laughs> like, like nah Sunderland they gotta be bad um, but yeah I think Will Grigg coming back to that I think the best one uh, I think my fun- the funniest part about that was 
you know how Stuart Donald had this other, I think, head of like recruitment there with him, who was saying, "Don't go for it, don't yeah, go for it." Yes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then at yeah. the end, he gives them this like massive bear hug. <laughs> like to me, that just like epitomized the club. You know that yeah. that that bear hug. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you you need to say in League One. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's no joined up thinking here. Like yeah. it's just it's just a a guy who basically has the. The, the restraint of about a seven-year-old in a sweet shop <laughs> who's trying to not pay too much Will Grigg, pays too much Will Grigg, and then, yeah, for some reason, <laughs> gets celebrated. Bizarre. Bizarre. Just thing. vibes, man. Just vibes. Just vibes. Vibes-based transfer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a vibes club. Vibes FC. Um, the vibes are bad. <laughs> the vibes are bad at Sunderland. Oh, man. I'm going to move to best moment. And Paddy, as a Charlton fan, ah. Uh, you were there at Wembley for that League One. <laughs> were you? Yeah. Oh, Take us through it, man. Take us through it. Uh, oh, man, I've got so much to tell. Welcome to my life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we do a separate podcast now just <laughs> yeah, on that. You weren't, you weren't there, man. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't at Wembley. <laughs> no, it was so good. Uh, I think it was made all the better for me. Um, and obviously, a lot of the Sunderland podcasts... Are you on the documentary? Uh, if I will go through it, frame by frame. I, sorry, I mean, maybe. You might see no me. Way. So the, the own goal... Uh, I'm not far away from that I okay. think I, know, I might be misremembering it now because uh, obviously I was, I was pretty hyped John on the day um, but one of the best, obviously it's, it's something that I like is so based on the fans and one of the nicest things for me on that day was um, I had bought tickets like in the gods somewhere and then loads of tickets got rearranged so I got my ticket rearranged so I ended up being completely by accident next to one of my best friends yeah. uh, and it was like how has this happened in like an 80,000 seat stadium so me and my like one of my best mates watched this game it was, it was so good and yeah I mean all of the misery that you see in the documentary that Sunderland fans feel as a Charlton fan who was at the game I can assure you it was the exact same level of feeling but just obviously mm. winning <laughs> <laughs> so did you see did you see I think them losing the player final was like come on like they can't catch a break at this point <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. yeah that's, like, they that's can't it, catch a break exactly. you know because then you've got to go through it yeah. all again it's not like oh you've made it to the playoffs Congrats, yeah. you can start halfway through yeah. the season it's like no um Another great moment uh, was the discussion they were having about what music to play at Stadium of Light, uh, where Charlie Mavin wants Ibiza type of music. Yeah, he wanted, uh, he, yeah, he wanted Adagio, Adagio for strings by Tiesto. Um, so that that's such a funny scene, honestly. Like, I remember when Netflix announced they're like putting out season three on Twitter. Like, everyone's just sharing this clip. Like. Throw back to this legendary clip, like throw back to this clip. Oh, phenomenal, man! It's it's it, the clip is so good. So it's I've got like really mixed feelings about it because I think it feeds into what we're saying about Charlie Methven being like quite effective. I really get what he's driving at. Like let's move away, like the slightly stodgy thing that we've had and played badly and and get some hype. I I do see what he's driving at. I do kind of think in a in a sport where we've put so much value on marginal gains in other areas i do think trying to get the crowd a bit more whipped up i think it makes sense i do kind of get it but it is also hilarious like <laughs> the music keeps playing whilst he's trying to make his point and it's like just turn the music off dude and it's just going and going no and then it's then it's, the, it's the comment at the end where it's like wow you can't do anything without a new set of speakers yeah. <laughs> and like the guy who says that like you can tell like he's like a college student who's just like on his work experience just here <laughs> Oh, well, that was don't see on the camera. Man, that, that, just, that, just for that scene, like this show should like win an Emmy, honestly, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> I, the, I was just going to say on that scene, um, I get wanting to keep the walkout music quite traditional because, mm. and then if you because if you compare it to Newcastle and what they do at St James's Park, um, they've got their their sets, a couple of songs that they'll play um, just before the team comes out. They'll have Blade and Races, and then they'll do a bit of. Um, hey Jude, na na na, Jordy, and then just before kickoff, they'll play um, the local hero theme tune, and that'll blast out your saxophone around the stadium. Uh, and when you've got that sort of history and the tunes and everything, it's it's phenomenal. You've got the whole stadium singing it. I can imagine. But yeah. I think the problem was that um, the piece of music that Sunderland used. Yes, I get the history of it. It was just crap. Just makes me think of The Apprentice. Yeah, it was. Um, it was. It was. De- I can understand why he wants to move on from it, um, but not to Adagio for strings. <laughs> you drawing a line there. What would you have accepted? Have I don't, I don't know because I think there's there's something there's something else you can do there. Whether it's I think you've got to tap into 
your your city's identity. Um, just like what Arsenal did with um, the Angel, yeah, yeah, that North that was London, beautiful, yeah. yeah, that sort of thing. There's got to be something that you can tap into there. Um, and I feel like it, this type of stuff has to happen naturally. You know, you can't mm-hmm. just okay, we're gonna change the song and then the fans are gonna pick it up, right? Yeah. Like, uh, for example, with the Arsenal thing, like it happened very spontaneously. And then the club bought into it, and now it's always played before every home game. So, I think these things have to just go on and just take place, take that due natural course. You can't force it. You can't, you can't force, force the song that's going to be identical, like, that will be attributed yep. to the club. It's got to be born from, yep. well, from Sunderland, it's got to be born in the shipyards. Another great uh, moment for me was season one. Uh, where Martin Bain finds out Zlatan Ibrahimovic <laughs> was like just his reaction like at that point you could just tell he's like what has Ellis got me in there yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Dude, it sums up the whole thing that, that, like, that is just unbelievable like but hypothetical Zlatan on Dan's side I could have seen it yeah <laughs> can you imagine like he just he makes that his project like he comes down to the championship trying to get Sunderland back up what would that be that's like another like hypothetical like what if which would be really fun to do honestly Zlatan Zlatan no. on Dan's side <laughs> no I think we can be sure it wouldn't have gone very well that's the really? one thing we can be sure of yeah there's no way that goes well no I mean I feel like the fans would have obviously taken to him uh, oh yeah tonight, but would they like he's really pretty, you think they wouldn't uh, there's the whole thing about them being like they're you know sort of the earth proper working people and he's quite flashy, like does it, like they, they they appreciate hard work and things like that. That's repeated quite a lot throughout the documentary. But they also appreciate winning, bro. Like, but would he help them win? So wait, so you're telling me if Zlatan comes to the championship, they won't get promoted back? I just yeah. before you say that, I've got to interrupt and just correct something. You said Zlatan on Tyneside. Oh, no. oh, not good. Was that Wilson, bro? No, oof. That is that is an egregious mistake I made, right? <laughs> it's good. Uh, not looking good, bro. Um, but yeah, what do you think, Zlatan? No, I don't. I don't. I don't think you can just uh, parachute. I don't think you can just parachute in a superstar player, one that's famous for being like having a bit of an issue with his like image and rep- like thinking too much of himself is a bit lazy. I don't think it would have gone well. I don't think it would have gone horribly. That's a hot take, man. Do you think? Yeah. I don't think that is. I just think that's a take. Really? Yeah. What do you think, Fergus? Uh, any other moments, guys? Any other thing which um, comes to mind? Yes, the one just was it. It was at the moment that Chris Coleman was was sacked, and he comes out, and then there's just that confrontation, just something that I hadn't seen from Chris Coleman before, where the guy goes and calls he calls Chris Coleman a prick, and he's like, I, "I'm not a prick. No, I'm I'm not that. I've I've got a wife and kids and everything." That was a very strange like response <laughs> yeah. to that. You know, I didn't I didn't understand that. Like. So does that give him credibility? Like, I, I don't okay. know. I, I think it was, yeah, it was just a sign of just the way it's just, I, all of the negativity and all of the horrible stuff has gone on. I think it's just broken him down into yeah. like, yep. when that was the, that was the straw that broke the camel's back and the camel's back being broken manifested in him, like coming up with some nonsense reply that didn't actually make any sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yeah. was that was actually such a funny moment. I um, felt really bad for him though. No, I, I, did, I, did, I did, I did, I was like, I did. Oh, I have the checker trade trophy down here. Uh, I think just that entire episode was fun. I love seeing people who aren't from London going to London <laughs> for a game of football and just taking over like, Trafalgar Square uh, like Sunderland did or just <laughs> pubs class. and anything. Yeah. I think it, I think it's brilliant because it's such a, it's such an adventure for the for for any fan of that sort of thing. So particularly from you're coming out from the northeast and like you're bussing down. You're training down, and then just that shot of them all getting yeah. off the uh, off the off the train, yeah. just hundreds of them. Oh, I thought it was wicked. Yeah, that was a cool one. London takeover. <laughs> <laughs> um, so to wrap up, I'm gonna throw a question out to you guys. Yeah, so Sunderland Till I Die obviously is a show about a team just being really bad, and they've just documented the entire thing. Any sport, any team, which has done really poorly. What would you have liked to see a documentary on? Like, you can go as, as far back oh. as you want. Oh, that's a difficult one. That's a difficult one. Oh, I tell you what, I got one. I'd love to see a documentary about... Um, remember when Sven-Goran Eriksson went to Notts County 
and Sol Campbell went there. Yeah. What the hell was going on there? I'd love to know what the hell was going on there. To be a fly on any of the walls in those buildings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, the whole thing, and the way it fell apart so quickly, yeah, I think that would have to be a good answer. one. I'd want to see uh, England at Euro 2016, where they <laughs> yes. lost to Iceland. When my favorite story is about how Roy Hodgson and his backroom staff, on the day I think Iceland were playing their last group game, instead of going to go scout them, they went for like a boat ride or something. <laughs> oh my god, can you imagine that on a documentary? <laughs> it's such a sitcom. Like, I can see Roy and uh, like his kind of And Gary Neville top, was there. Gary Neville top, was about. Oh my god. Roy Hodgson topless in sunburn on this boat. Drinking <laughs> like Stella or something. That would have been a great documentary. Like, focus. I think if you link it to relegation and everything. Do you remember a few years back when Rangers went right back to the bottom of Scottish football? Um, I think you'd want to include their final season in the Scottish Premiership and in the first season, just so you can try and get some of the nonsense and shambolic behaviour that was going on mm. and then their relegation and everything and then their experience playing all the um, terrible Scottish teams. And I mean, then you could end that with like Steven Gerrard's season where they won yeah. it. So... That'd actually be a really good one. Because they have a proper narrative arc there. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people know about that. Yeah, it would have been fascinating, I think, just on like a footballing sense. Because I remember when it happened, and I then watched it quite closely because I was like, what, what's going to happen here? Are they just going to like dominate all these leagues? Which they obviously then did. Yeah. But just like seeing the footballers' responses as well. Like I don't know how many of them stuck around, but there must presumably quite a few of them did. And just seeing what it was like for them to then play against like Clyde and stuff like... How did that, what was that like? I don't know, because it's just something we've not seen before and possibly may never see again. Yeah. And lastly, we have a season three coming, uh, which I think like a short season, I think yeah, there's like yeah. three episodes. So I want to ask you guys, like before we all leave, um, what is the legacy of this show? You know, how has it changed um, the way we see sports documentaries and um, sports movies? I think it's shown what sport actually is. Um, I think it's shown that it's shown that it's, there are truly terrible times in sport and it's the number of people that are affected by these 11 players and the manager that go out and, and play football. And I think it's really taps into what it's like to be a fan um, where not everything goes well. I mean, it was so long before they, they made it into that checker trade final from actually the last time they were at Wembley or something. So I think what it is, is a genuine reflection of being a lifelong fan of a club. And I think, I think we need more of this kind of stuff. I think it's, it's all very well showing you uh, Man City going and, and winning X, Y and Z. The all or nothings when it is everything. But let's, let's get what it is to be a fan because I think a lot of people can tap into the emotions that those fans felt. Yeah, I think I completely agree with that. Um, I think another kind of side of it as well is it shines a light, and which a lot of football uh, football documentaries or sports documentaries don't do, shines a light on like a lot of the negative things about the sport, like you know obviously all of the unraveling behind the scenes, the the blame game, managers getting sacked, then also like fans getting a bit too much on on players' backs, fans being super fickle about certain topics, certain things as well, and see certain issues. I think it kind of a lot of these documentaries are all about trying to show the positives in whatever field they're, they're operating within, whereas this one really is like the bare bones and shows you warts and all. And I think in terms of its impact on, on sports documentaries, for the documentary makers, I think it kind of became a bit of a blueprint of <laughs> what not to do. Like you look at all of the all or nothings following, there's so little engagement with the fans. They're very much trying to uh, manipulate everything they want to do. It's so clear, clean, it's so, it's so polished. And in comparison to Sons of Die, I think that was like the impact it ended up having. Yeah. I think that's the perfect note to wrap up. Uh, we leave it at that here. Uh, we've spoken a lot about All or Nothing. Uh, so check out our last episode where we ranked uh, all of them. Uh, we ranked City, Arsenal and Spurs. Uh, so check that episode out. Uh, we've done one on Ted Lasso. Uh, we've done one on the Luis Figo documentary on Netflix. Uh, and now we have a lot of stuff with the World Cup around the corner. Uh, we're going to be changing tack a bit and just focusing on World Cup-based documentaries. Uh, so there's a FIFA documentary coming out on Netflix, uh, I think, tomorrow. Uh, so we will be reviewing that on here. 
uh it will come out this week uh so yeah look out for that